You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Rating us on iTunes is great, but positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. In December of 1976... A new show began airing on American television. Its format was to present mysteries and ask questions. Its host was Leonard Nimoy, previously best known to audiences as Mr. Spock from the science fiction series Star Trek. For six seasons, In Search Of would throw the spotlight of television onto obscure and fringe topics. This single, exploratory vessel of a show would turn out to be the flagship for an armada that is still taking to the waves today. You've been listening to me nod to that fact in every introduction to this podcast. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to the 200th episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. For a decade now, we've been using monsters and the monster adjacent to talk about critical thinking in science. At its best, science looks at the mysteries of the world and tries to figure out what's true and false about them. To love science is to love mystery, but with the filter of the scientific method to help us sort out the true from the false. Which mysteries need to be solved, though? When you're a professional working scientist, 
Chances are you're going to end up working on minutiae. Often, the big questions have either been solved or have led to fractal tunnels of tinier, perhaps easier to test mysteries. But there are perennial mysteries that humans have wondered about, and not all of them lend themselves to solutions. Or they have solutions that require an investment of time and education or an acceptance of material explanations that some find intolerable. In 1976 and 1977, the TV show In Search Of began broadcasting mysteries. It covered Bigfoot, aliens, UFOs, Nessie, Jack the Ripper, and many other topics that captivated the curiosity of the mystery-minded viewer. Viewers like me, probably like you too. Some of those viewers, perhaps most, went on to keep these mysteries in the back of their minds as something to ponder occasionally. For others... These shows inspired a lifelong love of the weird, the fringe, and the unusual. And of that group, some have gone on to investigate these mysteries. Many of the people who now produce TV shows, podcasts, and books along these themes were brought into awareness of them by In Search Of. In this episode, as Karen and I discuss the show, I've brought in some cameo commentary from people who you may know to share their own memories of the show. Let's have one of those now. Earlier this year, the crew from the show The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe released an eponymous book, and the introduction includes some comments about the TV show In Search Of. Here is an excerpt from that audiobook, read by Dr. Steve Novella and used with his permission. My brothers and I watched every TV science documentary we could find, instinctively knowing they were much better than any sitcom or hokey drama. Mixed in with science documentaries, however were what I now know to be pseudoscience, or fake documentaries. This is where Leonard Nimoy comes in, as the host of the popular series In Search Of, which aired from 1977 to 1982. In each episode, Nimoy would narrate how scientists had discovered that aliens built the Nazca Lines, the enigmatic drawings etched into the sands of the Nazca Desert in Peru. Or were on the verge of discovering a large creature living in the Loch Ness, he built a compelling case, or so I thought, for the existence of extrasensory perception, Atlantis, and Bigfoot. Just like the hosts of the other science documentaries we would watch, he would show us evidence and interview experts. We ate it up. This exciting world of fantastic narratives that society had built in my head, evolution, Genesis, Loch Ness Monsters, and many more, was not sustainable. Eventually, I had to sort out the apparent conflicts among these various narratives. The claims of evolutionary biology and a literal interpretation of Genesis could not both be true at the same time. This meant questioning and doubting. I had to figure out which narratives to believe and which ones to reject. This is the essence of skepticism. How do we know what to believe and what to doubt? You'll be hearing from others as we continue this episode. Before we get into the discussion with Karen, I need to make an announcement. If you enjoy the show In Search Of, you might enjoy revisiting the series with me and archaeologist Dr. Jeb Card in a new show that we're calling In Research Of. Each episode, Jeb and I will watch an original episode of In Search Of and then discuss some of the explanations the producers chose not to include. The show just became available on iTunes this week, and we're kicking it off with an extra-long look at the TV special that became the backdoor pilot to the series, the Rod Serling-narrated TV special, In Search of Ancient Astronauts. 
Following this pilot episode, we'll be watching regular series episodes and occasionally we'll have special guests with relevant expertise about a topic. We just launched, but should be available on iTunes and patreon.com forward slash in research of. I'm very excited about this and Jeb and I already have half the first season recorded. So we hope that you'll join us on this excursion. Okay. It's time to put on your Spock ears, turn up your synthesizer music, and join Karen Stoll's knowing me for some Monster Talk. I can't believe it. We've now really, really made it to 200 episodes. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of episodes, uh, but for, for 10 years as well, maybe it's not so many, but I think quality over quantity, right? Um, that's a, yeah, that's something I say frequently. Uh, and, and it's it's it more it's more aspirational than than true, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm excited. The the, the uh, it's funny because we've got uh, you know all these episodes behind us, but uh, plenty to talk about still. There's lots of other monsters out there, and um, I, oh, I, 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 I yeah, I, I still remember the words of a friend who said, "Just how many episodes can you do on Bigfoot?" <laughs> well, dude, two hundred at least. <laughs> and not just on Bigfoot. No, no. There's there's dozens of monsters. So <laughs> it's interesting to me. Um, we're not a news show. We, we've sort of tinkered with that idea a couple of times of like dealing directly with monster news in a timely fashion. And I, I don't think mm-hmm. – um, first of all, our approach tends to be slow, measured, do a lot of research and come to conclusions that way. And uh, that doesn't lend itself to – cutting edge news, you know, uh, but, but also I think, um, uh, we may still venture into that now that we've broken away from the skeptic magazine we have, we're, we're setting up a new website. We may have a blog. So, uh, but I really think that the the crux of the show has been to just interview people that we want to talk to about subjects we want to talk about. Well, I I was thinking about this new likeness monster research that's come out. I, we talked, I talked to Neil, Gimmel, the doctor, the scientist who did the the eDNA research, and it looks like I, I because I did that interview, I, I've been on all these email chains with their press releases and lots of uh, data and information around what they found, and I I, I kind of want to talk to Neil uh, again, mm-hmm. but I'm a little bit annoyed because uh, the the science around that. It takes that. a lot to annoy you. Yeah. Well, let, let me explain why. So briefly, because I don't want this to turn into a Nessie episode, but uh, the, although it's, it is related. We don't have time. We've yeah. got so much to talk about. I know. But but so Gimmel and his team, they did an environmental DNA study on the lock. And so <laughs> then they went away. They took a bunch of samples. They went away. They did their analysis. And they come back and they say – some of the leading ideas around what Nessie might be if it were an animal in the lock would be like a, a giant, a big catfish, like the whale's catfish or a sturgeon. Mm-hmm. And so they looked at all the different animals that uh, showed up on the eDNA. And the the one that sort of has been hypothesized before and does show up is eels. But instead of saying here's a list of animals we did find in the lock. You can let your catfish go mm-hmm. and you can let your sturgeon ideas go. Instead, mm-hmm. they said it's possible that the Loch Ness Monster is a giant eel, which is not a viable hypothesis. That's not what the data says. The data just says there's eels in the lock. There's nothing about it being giant. 
And it's really yes, annoying. So I, I want to phrased very poorly. It is, and I can't help but think that it's phrased that way because they've got an upcoming TV special, uh, and they want to mm. hype the idea that there's giant eels. And and it's like if you're going to do science, that's great. And if that science gives you evidence that says you can eliminate these things and you can support these others, that's great too. But making a leap to mm-hmm. say, therefore, it's giant eels is ir- is irresponsible. And it's also the way almost every newspaper article went with it, right? So <laughs> it's classic crap. I was curious to, to find out what the source was. Was that coming straight from the horse's mouth or was that coming from – uh, some kind of yeah yeah media good question or in, in, in the press release it, this is some kind of story yeah it's quoted it's the way it's quoted in the press release it went through the university uh, that Gimmel is w- affiliated with and so it looks like it came out of their press office and also in conjunction with the the TV channel well, then it, it might well be edited to their dissatisfaction then because that's how these things often happen you know, you have a study. From a university, and right? Presented to the media, and uh, the phrasing's changed. I, I don't want to be too judgmental. Yeah. So I, I hope, I hope well, you're, you're right. You're right, though. They often they change your quotes, or you know, and if you, you know, we've both had our experiences with the media being wildly misquoted. Oh yeah, Edit, editing and taking sound bites. I mean, it just devastates what's actually said and meant. Yeah, which is why podcasts are the best media. <laughs> You can take your well, time and, and, and be so. very accurate. So I, I do I do want to reach out to uh, Professor Gemmel and find out if he wants to talk. I'm going to clarify a few things. Yeah. Well, speaking of TV shows. So how do you want to lead in on this? I'm not too sure, but I can't think of a more perfect episode for our 200th episode than to talk about this topic. <laughs> No, I agree. It's a, it's a we both we both were very influenced by this TV show in search of and that's what we're talking about today. Many of our friends and listeners to the show, uh friends on Facebook, uh I just people within the skeptical community, everyone knows and seems to love this show even if they don't agree with the uh the the conclusions that the show had. It's interesting because it was a groundbreaking show. In that um, there wasn't really anything quite like it on before, but there's been lots of things like it since. Right. So I guess we can kind of get into the history of that. But I would say that, that my personal experience was I remember watching this, a lot of uh, these episodes when they were first run. But it's peculiar because I used to um, – uh, first of all, I should remind listeners that uh, I'm old. Uh <laughs> Wait, I come from a time before VCRs. Older than me. I am. I, I am older than you. And uh, was there such a time? Well, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about the history. I also just wanted to talk about our personal interaction with the show as well, and how we both came across it. And sure. But um, I guess we start with a little bit of a potted history of In Search of, and the origins of uh, when it came out, and how long it was out for, how many episodes there were, that kind of thing. The history of In Search Of is deeply tied into the ancient aliens, ancient astronauts world. So I believe it was – Like everything. Yeah, like everything. Exactly. <laughs> so so 1968, okay. Eric Von Daniken writes this book, Chariots of the Gods. And mm-hmm. 
a few years later, uh, I believe in 72, a, a German film crew made a documentary film about uh, Chariots of the Gods. And it actually was an Oscar-nominated uh, documentary for, like, best documentary for that year. So I don't know if it was a slow year or what was going on. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 the documentary was picked up by a TV producer named Alan Landsberg. And what he did was he chopped up the documentary, like all the original footage, and he re-scripted it and had Rod Serling do the narration. And that became the TV special In Search of Ancient Astronauts in 1973. Now, this... This documentary was wildly successful. Um, it was it was um, mm-hmm. it was very very popular. It got great ratings, and I imagine it was rather inexpensive because you know it was just taking a documentary, editing it, and having it re narrated. Um, and it's sure. it's mostly just footage of these ancient places with Rod Serling saying, "Is it possible this?" and what about that? And how could they possibly this? So um, it's, it's, it's very much, uh, if you were a fan of ancient aliens TV shows, this, this documentary is going to seem really familiar. But it was so successful that in the same year, they did another documentary, this one called In Search of Ancient Mysteries. And then that was followed up uh, in 1975 by yet a third ancient aliens documentary. This one's called The Outer Space Connection. And the success of these mm-hmm. three TV specials, they used to call them specials when they were not part of the uh, regular programming. Um, these three TV specials were so successful, they were able to use it to to pitch and successfully get a TV series. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately, after the Outer Space Connection in 1975, Rod Serling, uh, who had had some previous heart uh, problems... Uh, went in for surgery and died on the operating table. So he was not mm-hmm. able to be the narrator for the new TV series. But I guess most people knew Serling from uh, mostly from the Twilight Zone, but also from uh, the TV show Night Gallery. He definitely had a, uh, a, a fandom genre kind of appeal. And so mm-hmm. I... I suspect that's why they went with replacing him with Leonard Nimoy because bringing in Nimoy, you automatically get the gravitas uh, of his spot character from Star Trek. Everything he says feels like it's coming from the science officer on the Enterprise. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more believable. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they totally had a, a, an inbuilt fan base with him yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the first season uh, is – Mostly, uh, it's remote shots, uh, interviews with uh, scientists and sort of fringe belief people. And then they cut back to scenes mm-hmm. with uh, Leonard Nimoy either in a studio or sometimes standing on the streets of Los Angeles or on the roof of the of the what appears to be the building that they do the production in. Uh, so uh, it's it's narrated by Nimoy. Uh, he occasionally appears on screen. Sometimes he appears mm-hmm. in front of um, photos, like uh, the photos of uh, missing airplanes or missing ships. Uh, it's got a... Uh, mm-hmm. Which is very similar to the sets of the Night Gallery, which is basically him in a dark studio standing in front of paintings. It feels like uh, they're kind of tapping into the Night Gallery 
feel. Go and ahead. I think at times he was actually on location too. Kind of like halfway through the first season, he does his first location shoot. And later on, mm-hmm. that format changes. And he does, I, we, I believe he does go out. My recollection is he actually goes to places. But during the first season, it was very low cost. Now, I, I've been watching the first season. And mm-hmm. what I've noticed is that there are these people who, there will be real scientists uh You'll see uh, real biologists, real astronomers, and then they'll sort of mix them up with people who are really fringy, new age people. And there's no real Mm -hmm. distinction. It's all qualified, certified experts on a TV show. So there's no nothing on the screen that really lets you know. And there's no Wikipedia back then. So for the audience, I think it's a little deceptive because they sort of, you know how there's that thing where they give um, false equivalencies? Uh, where you bring in mm-hmm. on TV shows um, two sides of the issue, and like if one side's right. on natural selection, <laughs> it's a balance, right? right. It's, a, it's a false sense of balance, but but uh, mm. clearly the the sources they were pulling from were um, all kinds of new age literature as well as real science. Like there's episodes in season one that are about killer bees, and they go to mm-hmm. an expert who is. You'll see him on everything. He's in all kinds of bee movies, not 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 bee rating, but like movies about bees. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just, <laughs> but the, the show has an interesting mix of science and BS. Uh, it it's just yeah. it's wildly mixed together. It's like a smoothie. Yes, and I think that that fits in with the the disclaimer or the the producer's disclaimer, which they have at the start of every episode. <laughs> This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. So I think that that says it all when it comes to the the odd eclectic mix of experts that they had on the show. Yeah, very much so. And the show, I, I, again, I get the impression it was a low-cost show. I don't know, like, the, the ratings are kind of all over the places. I don't know if we, you know, I don't have access to the old Nielsen ratings, but on IMDb, you can see, like, there's ratings for the different episodes and stuff. And they're, they're mostly yes, like a, yeah, yeah. a C plus, B minus. I mean, like, you know, they're, it's, it's, but it's a fun yeah, show. A lot of them are seven or eight. Yes, exactly. There was nothing like it on TV. If you wanted to get a big dose of weird, this is where you had to go. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I just remember watching it when I was a kid and it was a little bit different to what you had in the States here. Uh, so it was completely rebranded, and it was actually called Great Mysteries of the World instead of In Search Of. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. It was a little bit confusing, though, because it still began, every episode still began with Nimoy saying on tonight's episode of In Search Of, and I'm like, what the hell's this In Search Of that he's talking about? This is Great Mysteries of the World. You know, I mean, I was a kid when this was on TV, and um, as is typical, we get things a couple of years after uh, the States. And to this day, I mean, my mum, you know, shame for shame, is a fan of Days of Our Lives. And she would watch it and it would be, I don't know, maybe July or something. And they'd be celebrating Christmas on the show from five years ago. Oh, wow. So that's how far back, that's how far back soapies were. I think other soaps like Bold and the Beautiful were a little bit more 
contemporary. But uh, so I don't know. I really don't know when we started. Uh, it was starting to be uh, shown in Australia, but I think it was probably early '80s. And uh, I know I was about five or six. I think when it was shown and they had, uh, as I said, it was completely rebranded. They even had a, a new introduction for the show. It was int- introduced by a producer named Scott, Scott Lambert. And it was shown, I think it's on Saturday nights at 5 PM. Um, and even the, the intro, the music intro at the start was different. Uh, so there was a lot that was different about it. Even the, the visuals at the start of the show, it just wasn't the same introduction at all. So I don't know why they did that. I don't know if there was a, a legal or a copyright issue or if they were trying to make it more Australianized because I don't think it necessarily was for that. Uh, in, in fact, I think it just made it a bit more clumsy since you had these two kind of competing themes. Yeah, that's bizarre. Well, I didn't really know any anything different right, right. until I grew older. And, and then, as you said, I mean, uh, I got some early episodes uh, on VCR, which shows how old I am. Uh, and then certainly once they started appearing on YouTube, that was really exciting to be able to access all of these shows on, on YouTube. Although often it's bothersome because you've got one episode stretched out over maybe three videos. You know, it was really exciting to be able to access I've those. I've got a, uh, a really cool link someone's put together. They've got every episode, and the full episodes. So the episodes are about 22 minutes long. So all the episodes of the original mm-hmm. run, I can put a link to that in the show notes. Now, I don't, I don't know – if it's Fantastic. legal for it to be up there, but it's been up there a long time, and um, <laughs> it's 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 fun to watch them. Um, I mean, they're only twenty two minutes long. You can you know cue one up at work. Yeah, they're good. They still hold up. I mean, they're very much of their time. You only need to look at Nimoy's clothing <laughs> to see that. It, which we shall delve into later by request. Uh, but yeah, to see that it's a product of its own time. But I think just as for the how incongruous it was between the Australian version and the American version. Uh, I didn't know any different when I was a kid and it was still just thrilling and exciting to watch those shows. And then when I was older, I was like, oh, okay, this is an American version. That's fine. But I don't know. I've heard from some people in the UK that it was shown uh, and that it was in search of. And then other people say, no, it wasn't. You couldn't uh, watch it in the UK. So We'll drop some of these into the episode. I asked a few people, because a lot of people who do podcasting now around these weird topics were heavily influenced by In Search Of. And so I thought, I thought it would be yes. fun to, you know, have some people just sort of talk about how the show influenced them. Um, so if you hear us like cut to a break and suddenly there's somebody you don't you don't expect, that's what that's all about. Lyle Blackburn, the author of The Beast of Boggy Creek, Beyond Boggy Creek, Lizard Man, and Momo, shares his thoughts on In Search Of. Hi, this is Lyle Blackburn, author of The Beast of Boggy Creek. In Search Of definitely had an impact on me when I was young. You know, I can remember watching this show. Uh, it came on late at night, and even the intro captured my imagination uh, because of the pictures and, and the particular music they played. Um, and the subjects, you know, that was a lot of the first time I had been exposed to some of those mysteries. And uh, I can remember just watching with, you know, my eyes wide open thinking, you know, are there really, uh, you know, creatures like this in the woods, uh, you know, did uh, extraterrestrials visit Earth, you know, uh, prior to recorded history, uh, things like that. And and uh you know witches and 
just all the the mind and the psychology of of what is possible out there as far as paranormal things and you know i certainly didn't think of it in terms of paranormal at the at that time it was just you know weird spooky things uh that existed in the world that they were looking at and so you know it, it it impacted me because I loved things like that. I loved all all things spooky. I loved uh, monster movies and, and things like that. But I can remember the those episodes really actually scared me because I'd watch and you know, kind of came on at, at night and you know I was scared to go to bed because whereas movie monsters you know I kind of understood that they were made out of latex. They were people in masks. You know these were real mysteries. These were things that you could encounter in real life and that really not only terrified me but really intrigued me and that just stuck with me for the rest of my life and you know I sought out similar things to watch um, over the years uh, but there's nothing really compares to In Search Of. I mean even the choice of Leonard Nimoy as the host was just perfect because he kind of had that air of mystery about him and his voice and, and the, even the dark hair and the way he looked and the way he presented the cases like an investigative journalist. He just wanted to know about the story. He wasn't passing judgment neither here nor there as to trying to persuade you to believe or disbelieve. Uh, he just portrayed and, and brought forth the best of the facts in those mysteries. So In Search Of was certainly one of the, one of the best shows that's ever been in, in this uh, type field and I think a lot of the shows now are just uh, springboarding off what was done with In Search Of and and nothing's going to really ever come close to that because it was the original you know it was uh, a lot of the first time we had been exposed to these great mysteries that we're still exploring we're still trying to unravel and In Search Of is, is just one of my favorite things. And if I, I even so much as hear the beginning part of that music, it just takes me back to that time uh, when I first saw it or when it would come on television and just the anticipation of what I was going to learn in that episode. And those things would just stick with me the next day and I would think about them in my mind. And that's part of the passion I have for this now is is stemming from those days of watching In Search Of. The show was on for uh, six seasons, uh, and it, there was 144 episodes that had Leonard Nimoy hosting. And, yeah, but which is another show. <laughs> there was that's incredible and. Um, um, Unexplained mysteries, others. Those amazing animals, and um, uh, I think I think really in search of sort of burst a dam wall, not a, like a not, not like damn it, but like <laughs> like it. There was a, a need for <laughs> damn wall. paranormal, factual ish sort of documentary <laughs> type stuff. And after In Search of came mm-hmm. out, lots of other shows came out. And like you say, Unsolved Mysteries and Sightings. Uh, there's all these other shows. Uh, and, and in the UK, they had the uh, Arthur C. Clarke series. There's multiple series from him that, uh, that uh, right. were very similar in this mm-hmm. format. And do you think that it was a precursor to reality TV? Because I've heard a few people say that, and I can actually see the parallels I have been in interesting debates around that. I, I think... Uh, it it has strong parallels. Um, I've heard arguments against it, but I, I really do feel like um, mm-hmm. it was a low cost, uh, high return way 
to get lots of content on TV that, um, you know, uh, what Joe Nickel might call mystery mongering, right? I mean, that's, that's ultimately, right. it's, it's, it's about selling a mystery, even maybe if the mystery was already solved, even when the show was on, you know? So that's that mm-hmm. disclaimer they give at the beginning. What they're really saying is we're presenting information that sounds cool and spooky. And if there's an easier mm-hmm. mundane explanation, uh, you're probably not going to get it on this show. That's, <laughs> I think that's what that's really yeah, saying. And then you can make up right. your own mind. <laughs> but I, I think that there are some parallels to reality TV and going back and watching some of the old episodes recently, seeing in particular what really stood out to me were the recreations. Yes. There was an episode on St. Germain. I think it was the man who refused yes. to die. And and just some of those fun recreations of, of uh, you know, uh, 18th century France and uh, you know, people playing various characters. And uh, there was an episode I watched recently, too, on Anastasia, the Anastasia Romanov, the daughter of the Tsar Nicholas II, yeah, who the whole family um, were murdered, or were they? Because apparently Anastasia wasn't, uh, even though I believe nowadays they've discovered uh, – DNA for all of the family members that have been able to identify all of them. We talked about that a little bit in the Rasputin episode. So if people want to go back and listen to that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we did. And in, in watching that episode, it was interesting because one of the, there've been a number of claimants who purported to be Anastasia and that uh, they interviewed one of these ladies and she was a real character. And it was just, uh, I mean, that came across as reality TV to me where they're following around this American guy who's married this woman who claims to be the, the duchess and, uh, and she was just a, a really interesting character. And it was just very much like in the style of reality TV yeah. today. I think, I think the reason I got pushback in those conversations I had around that was reality television is allegedly not scripted. And the In Search of show mm-hmm. is scripted but there's portions of it that are just interviews, and those portions feel yes. like a reality TV show to me. Um, I, we don't know how yeah. many takes yeah. were made. We don't know how much the producers or directors pushed towards particular conclusions. Uh, but we know in reality TV, they might do takes, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten takes to get the quotes they want, and then they fix it in post, you know. But we also know that reality TV is scripted i mean um we've had enough contact well, with that, producers right. and, and worked in reality tv enough to know that it absolutely is scripted i mean my husband worked for high noon entertainment and uh worked with a lot of very popular shows which are on at the moment still uh like um cake boss and hey uh, we have uh, one of our listeners <laughs> is uh ralph from cake boss oh yeah there you so. go hey ralph um <laughs> and i'm trying to think of that show with uh Chip and Joanna Grimes, one of those DIY TV shows about doing up houses and flipping them and everything. Um, so he's worked closely with these people and knows for a fact that these shows are scripted. Yeah. They, they absolutely are because they can't afford to waste film by filming mundane stuff. Uh, but there was another episode that I watched recently too that was on Past Lives. And I can't remember – who this woman claimed to be, but she believed that she was a reincarnation of a British monarch. And that to me was very reality TV. She was being followed around and she's uh, running around this castle telling the, uh, the interviewer what the room looked like at the time that she was King. And 
uh, just pointing things out. And uh, it, it seemed to me very much like a, you know, a 1970s, 1980s version of something like Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. That's pretty funny. Karen's husband, Matthew Baxter, is a longtime ghost hunter and friend of the show. And here are his thoughts on In Search Of. Childhood was a time for most of us when all manner of creatures and possibilities existed. Werewolves, vampires, fairies, trolls, zombies, wizards, ghosts, demons, extraterrestrials, even Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. It was a wonderfully exciting world to live in. I always felt that I was going to discover a forest somewhere that was an unearthly green, and it would be home to all of these things. During this period of all things possible, I was a huge fan of Star Trek, and most notably the pointy-eared first officer, Mr. Spock. He was just human enough to be accessible, but he also had superpowers in comparison to humans. I loved him. One day, my older brother was watching TV, and I heard that unmistakable voice. I ran to see what Spock was saying and was shocked to see that this man was missing the slanted eyebrows and pointy ears that should have accompanied that voice. I was initially disappointed until I heard him talking about another character with those very attributes, whom I was also a fan of, Dracula. Now, my parents and other adults had tried very hard to make sure that I understood that Dracula wasn't real. I had nothing to be scared of. I wasn't scared. I wanted to be him. However, here was this adult telling me that Dracula was actually real. He showed me when he lived and how he lived, his complete name, and what made him so terrifying and mysterious. There was no turning back. In Search Of had hooked me. The episode on Dracula lured me in, and episodes on ghost ships and Bigfoot kept me there. I devoured every word, every frame of video. I also, unexpectedly, learned how to use critical thinking 
when Leonard Nimoy showed me how newly discovered evidence could change the way we think about these things. I owe a lot to In Search Of. Rediscovering it later in life is like renewing that chance at finding an unearthly green forest where all of these creatures still exist. My name is Matthew Baxter. In addition to the original run of 144 episodes, in 2002, they did a revival and they had the guy who played Skinner on the X-Files, Mitch Pileggi. Mitch Pileggi hosted that. The way they reformatted the show, though, it felt almost identical to the Ripley's Believe It or Not format which is, you know, just multiple okay. segments with the host kind of being cut back in again and again. And it's ironic mm-hmm. to me or, or, or interesting in that now they're redoing Ripley's Believe It or Not, and they're going to host that with Bruce Campbell. It's like it's like everything that was on is coming back again. I mean, we had Project Blue Book in the 70s, um, uh, and now there's a, a, you know, a revival of that kind of an idea. Uh, Everything from the 70s was great, (laughs) (laughs) including us. Yes. Uh, Vintage and always classic. That's me, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I think that there have been a number of people over the years who've wanted to emulate the show. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people saying, oh, I'm going to make the next in search of. And nothing has come out that's been the same because it's very much of its time. I think that's part of its charm. I I agree. Um, you know, and there's a, a current version now, isn't there, that came out yeah, in, in 2018? Yeah, in 2018, they, right, with uh, Zachary Quinto or Quinto? I think it's Quinto. Quinto. His I version, and of course, he played Spock in the J.J. Abrams film, so I guess that's why he got that gig. Yes. But, it looks a little bit like him. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I like his acting, and I, I enjoyed him in Heroes. I enjoyed him in the first season of American Doesn't Horror Story. quite have the safari suits, but... No, <laughs> but... His version is more of a direct, he's going out and doing investigations. So it's, it's more hands on. Hands on. But, uh, I did, when I was prepping for this episode, I did see that, uh, they've announced that a season two has been picked up, uh, by the History Channel. So I expect we'll see more of Zach. Uh, mm-hmm. hitting the in search of, uh, stuff. And again, I think it's okay for it to be different. It just can't be the exact same thing. You can't replicate something from that time. Did you ever see the movie, um, Amazon Women on the Moon? <laughs> no. What do you it, think? <laughs> probably not. Who do you but, think I am? But, <laughs> well, my wife, uh, you know, Kathleen, she refuses to acknowledge. We, we saw like two movies, um, on our first. I don't, it wasn't exactly a date. I don't really know what to call it. We were, you, to, you were stalking her? We, we, no, I was at her house. I'm, <laughs> she went I, to the movies. I'm and friends <laughs> with her. You broke into her house? <laughs> My brother-in-law and I have been friends for years. And uh, we were both trying – this is probably oversharing. We are both trying to date the same girl. And uh, it really wasn't working out for me. So at one point I said, hey, can I invite your sister down to watch movies? And he's like, oh, I don't care. Right? So – uh, I I went and asked her. <laughs> that could have been ugly. Well, it turned out pretty well. Uh, I mean, if you consider marriage and children turning out well, so <laughs> some would. <laughs> I I'm happy with it. But what happened was I invited her down, and she's like, "What are you watching?" I said, "We're we're going to watch a couple of movies. We're watching Amazon Women on the Moon, and we're watching an American Werewolf in London." 
And both of those are John Landis films. And she was like, well, I don't know anything about Amazon Women on the Moon, but she loved uh, American Werewolf in London. So I think in her mind, she only acknowledges that we watched the second film. But the first movie, Amazon Women on the Moon, is actually almost – it's a, a series of vignettes. So it's, it's, it's like, mm-hmm. it parodies a lot of different things. And one of the sketches they have in there is just absolutely one of my very favorite things. And in fact, there's two. One of them, I'll say one of them is, uh, has Ed Begley Jr. in a segment called Son of the Invisible Man. And it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, wherein Ed Begley plays the son of the invisible man who believes he's invisible, but is not. So if you think about the invisible man oh. taking off his clothes and walking around and moving stuff, and he was like, have you ever seen a shirt make a phone call? Woo! You know, he's... Like the, the emperor's new clothes. Right, but, he, but, but everybody can see it. It's really funny. But the other one is uh, called, uh, I hate to beep this, but it's called Bullshit or Not. And it's a takeoff mm-hmm. of In Search Of. And it's got Henry Silva playing the Nimoy character and his question is they're investigating the uh bullshit or not crews have uh you know done a recreation to figure out was jack the ripper actually the loch ness monster and it is it is a brilliant (laughs) brilliant parody of in search of jack the ripper was he a prosperous london surgeon perhaps a member of british royalty well a bullshit team has unearthed spectacular new evidence which suggests that Jack the Ripper was, in fact, the Loch Ness Monster. That's another good episode of, of In Search of. Oh, too. absolutely. Yeah. Both but, of those. Uh, but both of those are, exactly. And uh, I could put a link to those little parodies, but uh, ultimately that led to me being married and having children. So it's all good. That's what I owe. Yeah, long story. Yeah, it's a long story, but now I, <laughs> Cut a long story I ultimately short. got laid. And that's the important thing. Exactly. <laughs> so after Serling passed, uh, was Nimoy the first choice or were there other contenders? It sure, it sure seems like all my reading suggests that Nimoy was the first choice after Serling passed. I, I have not found anything suggesting they had talked to other people. So um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wonder who else they could have gotten. He, he, he really did sort of fit that, that, that niche of the uh, genre actor who is well-respected. Oh, do you think that he... Wasn't he the science officer on on Star Trek? Yeah, he sure was. So, do you think that that lent credibility to the show? And, and that was it did maybe for me. Why uh, they were... If Mister Spock <laughs> says it, I know it's true. That's you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. But were there any seasons that he didn't appear on, or any episodes that he didn't appear on? No, that you're but aware later, of? like in the first couple of seasons, uh, he doesn't have a mustache. But later, he has a mustache. Which almost feels like a different character. He looks so different with that mustache. It's really weird. And, yeah, I mean, we put word out on Facebook, on our Facebook group uh, for Monster Talk, that we were going to be discussing this topic. And we had an inordinate amount of people requesting that we talk about his moustache yeah. and his clothing. <laughs> I had even private queries, people sending me emails and messages on Facebook. That's amazing. Uh, saying, it's a good can looking you please stash. talk about this? Yeah, I don't, I don't I mean... I, it, well, I, I haven't taken a really really close look at the the style of it i don't think i could name it because i mean there are charts online of 
different styles of moustaches, like handlebar moustaches and Hitler moustaches. And uh, I mean, his was <laughs> this would be a porn stash, as I believe what this is called. It's um, a Mark oh, Mark Spitz porn stash. Oh, yep, yep. I guess it was from the seventies. Yeah, uh, but he from from what I can gather, he didn't start wearing this until season four. That sounds about right. And yeah, I haven't gotten that so, far in my rewatch. I don't know if he had it for seasons five and six as well, but um, it's, some people found it very off-putting and others found it delightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 he wears um, – like I kept – in my memory, he was wearing a lot of crazy 70s, like big collars and uh, weird colors yes. and flared pants. But But in watching season one, it's not that crazy – Although he is consistently wearing like super wide lapels, I I went back and looked at some photographs and yeah and videos as well, and I mean it's all again very much of its time. And he wears a, a lot of things like safari suits and houndstooth blazers, yes, yes, and cravats, cravats. I mean, we should bring back the cravat. I think it's it's stylish. He gets heavily involved over the course of the show. And one of the things he had done himself was uh, he had done a, a one-man show on Vincent Van Gogh, which is, I believe... One of the episodes as well. Right, right. But it ultimately, he's able to use uh, that, and they actually do an episode about Van Gogh. And now I know that's not actually mm -hmm. how you say his name. It's like Van Gogh or something, but well, we're not going to do that. American pronunciation yeah, yeah, exactly. Van Gogh, but I, it doesn't matter. We we understand, but yeah, he he had uh, lots of interesting ties as well. If you go back and look at pictures, a lot of seventies colors and stripes, which are actually coming back into fashion. Oh my gosh! Too. Yeah, you know what? I, I think what what makes him so special is not just the size and the patterns, but it's the quantity of polyester involved. Um, there's polyester. Yeah, there's also uh, corduroy. Oh, corduroy, yes, yeah, corduroy well, and polyester the are the fabrics of the seventies. That's a fact. Jackets. Pants. He had yeah, lots of beige got, uh, pants too, which is risky and nowadays. He has, a, but. he has a tweed. He'll wear tweed uh, blazers with uh, turtlenecks. Looks great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we call them skivvies in Australia, which I think is a different meaning here. What? Yeah, that means a, underwear. A in the polo necker yeah, skivvy. Yeah, yeah that's, skivvies. Really, that's, that's a little sort of half collar thing. Yeah. Um, I, I remember getting booted out of a club in, in Australia once because um, some friends I was with, one of them was wearing a polo neck and you had to wear a, uh, it was like a returned service league club for veterans. And uh, so you had to wear a, a collared shirt. And uh, so this friend anyway said, well, I'm wearing an, an extra big collar, you know, with a polo neck. It's not, not wearing a collar, but uh, anyway, he also wore lots of epaulets on his jackets, which I thought was interesting, and they're coming back into fashion too. So, yeah, I I, I think uh, we probably can pull together some uh, some images of Nimoy in his various fashions and all across the seasons, and uh, I can put those in the show notes. In fact, oh yeah, yeah I'll yeah. actually leave Stylish. a note for myself here because if I don't, I'll forget. Um, uh, put again, there was a lot of lot of interest in this this particular part of the topic because I guess he made a, an appearance at the start and at the, the end and then sometimes throughout. Yeah. And, it, it varies. Um, like sometimes it's just his voice, like it, like just a little intro and then like it's just his voice for a lot of the episode. Um, and we should say too, it's just a great voice. Perfect voice. It is. Yeah. No, he's, he's got, he, he, uh, it, 
He did a lot of stuff. Like what I was going to say was, you know, he ended up becoming a director. It's it's interesting because you think about the connections. I don't know if this had anything to do with it or not, but he uh, was an actor on Night Gallery with Rod Serling, and when uh, in some of the episodes, at least one of the episodes, he got to direct the episode as well. So I don't know if that was his first chance to direct or not, but mm-hmm. I believe. He may have gotten behind the director's chair someone in search of, but definitely there's a connection between uh, Nimoy and Serling that predates uh, in search of. It, it was foretold. <laughs> well, I think it was, you know, it's who you know, right? It matters, right? So yeah, after yeah. in search <laughs> of, they do the Star Trek movies and mm-hmm. – Eventually, uh, Nimoy uh, becomes a director on several of the Star Trek motion pictures. Also, Three Men and a Baby. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Let me just double check that. And yeah, I think yeah, that was directed, Tom Yeah, Three I, Men and a Baby, very successful, made a buttload of money, and Leonard Nimoy directed it. Yep. Interesting. Did you ever see the documentary uh, For the Love of Spock? So it came out a couple of years ago. Yes, I'm sure you uh, directed that. by his son. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, but I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of everything else that he did. Which so I, I come to this from a different place for than than a lot of people because you mean Australia is my <laughs> favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that too. But uh, in search of is the is my favorite thing that he did. But that's just me. Um, but I thought it was interesting in that documentary where in search of just seemed to be nothing but a blip on his career. They mentioned it, I think, in one sentence. Yeah. And just moved on to something else. They didn't treat it. <sighs> yeah. At all. I, I, it bugged me because, um, same thing with Serling. Um, Serling uh, did these documentaries uh, leading up to In Search of, and his daughter wrote a, uh, a biography of him. Uh, mm-hmm. And it only gets just a couple of sentences in the, in the biography. Uh, it, it, of course, it was right at the end of his life. So I, I guess that's maybe right. one. But I, I, I just. I wish there was more information on how the show was put together and some, mm-hmm. some of the behind-the-scenes things. And unfortunately, this is one of those cases where I had an opportunity earlier in the history of this show, Monster Talk, to reach out to these people. And I mm-hmm. should have and didn't. And now I regret it because I think we probably could have gotten some good interviews around it. And unfortunately, a lot of the key people have passed on. Yes. Uh, Nemoy was at um – Dragon Con a yes. number of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, Derek, Derek um, Colin Dunno, uh, who um, does the skeptic track for Dragon Con, tried to get Nimoy uh, to come do a panel about In Search Of. And everything mm-hmm. suggests Nimoy wanted to do it, but mm-hmm. his handlers only wanted him to do Star Trek stuff. Ah, oh, what a shame. Yeah, what a missed yeah. opportunity. It really was, because uh, I, I would have loved to have heard his reminiscence around this, this oh stuff. absolutely i just don't think enough attention is being paid to to that aspect yeah and, i no, mean search yeah, really stood agreed. the test of time and so many fans still well it's interesting because one of the uh, the questions you've got here is around um how credulous the show was and re-watching it it surprises me that there's actually it's not as credulous as i remembered it being it's it's definitely more balanced than modern shows of this vein. Like if you watch a, right. an ancient alien show or a, you know any of those kind of uh, uh, shows where they're, they're they're pushing a particular 
take on a narrative. Mm -hmm. That's not here. They talk to real scientists who are very skeptical. And then they talk to mm -hmm. believers who are, and it's it's not really even pitted as a us versus them kind of thing. It's just they they talk to different people, get different points of view, and at the end you draw your own conclusions, right? Um, but it's interesting that you should remember the show as being credulous because in talking with friends of mine over the the past couple of weeks in preparation for this episode, uh, nearly all of them said, "Oh yeah, that was." such a great show but it wasn't skeptical it was just so credulous and and yet upon reflection going back and watching the episodes you're right i mean it is this odd mixture of uh skepticism and belief uh with the the people that they bring on as experts on the shows but at the same time there's more skepticism than you would think my memory has done it a disservice and i think mine too and i guess that's a good reason to go back and watch all the episodes all over again. I don't want to be a hater. There's there's a lot of these shows I really enjoy. And that's one of the things we've sort of uh, dealt with as, as we've done Monster Talk for 200 episodes. We are in the awkward position of being people who are skeptical of monsters and the paranormal, but we like mm -hmm. them. <laughs> but there are a lot of us. So I think... That <laughs> Here are some thoughts on a search of from Brian Dunning, the longtime host of the venerable old podcast, 13 years and running, Skeptoid. The show started when I was 11 years old. It is not hyperbole to say that it was genuinely the most influential hour of my week. For years, I believed every word. But more importantly, it, it blew my mind open at all these incredible things that actually exist in our universe. Uh, evidence for immortality, actual ghosts, uh, psychics, all this stuff. And I couldn't understand why nobody else seemed to care. I'd be all, don't you see what Nimoy is showing us? This is real. And my parents and everybody else, they're just, oh, ho, hum, didn't care. You know, aliens, curses, real monsters living outside our window. Eh, no biggie. So I spent years carrying around all of... The secrets of the universe bottled up inside. You don't talk about it. Your friends, everyone else will think you're a weirdo. So what I do today, it really is the direct descendant of having watched In Search Of and uh, the Arthur C. Clarke series and those shows. They created in me this incredible thirst for mysteries that, that today we can actually solve with science and critical thinking. I am comfortable saying that I probably would not be here if it wasn't for In Search Of. But incidentally, just having had this experience personally, it gives me an appreciation for the danger that today's versions of In Search Of actually represent to the public. You know, whether it's uh, ancient aliens or ghost adventures or any of the, uh, <laughs> the countless clones of those, they present fiction as if it's fact, and people believe it. I'm just lucky that in my case it was the abominable snowman and not... Better living through televangelism <laughs> or, or something that could have turned my life down a very different path. Pop culture influences. And that is a mighty responsibility. It's interesting to say I, I'm going to take scientific skepticism as the filter when I approach these topics. Mm -hmm. But I still just enjoy these monster stories. Why do you think In Search Of was such an influence for so many skeptics? Because... Again, just the reception we've had on Facebook and elsewhere has been incredible. People love this show. Uh, they, they love it above all other shows of its elk. 
And why why is it so influential, especially if there are aspects of it which are credulous? Why is it so popular amongst skeptics? Uh, so first of all, for people of a certain age, uh, uh, a certain age, <laughs> <laughs> the the it was the only thing like it on TV at the time. I agree. Mm -hmm. Now. If you think about it, uh, by the time you get to the late 80s, there's quite a few things to choose from, in, including in search of reruns. The, it, it was back in the 70s and early 80s, the only thing like it on TV. Mm -hmm. The creepy music. Oh, my gosh. Oh. The electronic music that they had was so I'm spooky. so glad yeah, that you raised and, that. I mean, a lot of people talked about the music, too, and just how haunting and, and eerie it was the incidental music. Uh, oh, it's oh, it's fantastic, and and it's um the crazy thing about it to me is that there's no album of the incidental music on its own. The music for In Search of was created by Lauren Rinder and W. Michael Lewis. There was an album from the TV show released under the In Search of Orchestra band name. But it was, for me, disappointing in that it didn't have any of the cool interstitial music and sound effects. And perhaps jarring to fans of the original sound, the album was done as disco. Now, you may well ask why the album from a TV show came as disco music. And to get to the bottom of that is a longer story than I can include fully here, but the micro version is that in addition to their TV credits, Rinder and Lewis were wildly successful disco musicians. Like, drive around in Ferraris and get onto TV shows like 60 Minutes kind of success. The music they made for In Search Of truly defined the sound space of the show in a way that influenced future paranormal shows even today. And I don't know for certain, but I strongly suspect that the use of the word woo-woo as a derogatory term for the paranormal may very well derive from the soundscape of the television show In Search Of. It's such cool incidental music. It's so creepy. And I think about like episodes like the ghost episodes and uh, the UFO episodes where where you've got this – you're getting these uh, stories narrated by Nimoy mm -hmm. and underneath it you hear this just absolutely bizarre and creepy electronic, which was mm -hmm. relatively new at the yeah, time. I mean there's just not that much <laughs> – yeah, a lot of synthesizer. And later on, just a few years later, in fact, uh, uh, 1980, you'll get Carl Sagan doing uh, Cosmos. Mm -hmm. And on Cosmos, they had Vangelis and uh, several other electronic musicians doing uh, really, you know, uh, professional, uh, easy to recognize tunes done with that synthesizer. Mm -hmm. But this was the age when like the Moog and some of the other analog, analog synthesizers were just, uh, kind of hitting the market. And it was still an unusual thing. By the mid eighties, you know, uh, those synthesizers are part of like, uh, first of all, they, they come down in price mm -hmm. and then you hear them on every alternative <laughs> new wave band out there but right. uh, well, uh just they're they're used very effectively and and un, it was a uh, very groundbreaking i want to mention the names of the musicians the composers as well uh of that incidental sure. music so i looked them up and it's lauren rinder and michael w lewis so i think they totally deserve a shout out for just how cool that music is and i always thought to me it was a little bit reminiscent of ray manzarek from the doors just that kind of 
Yes. Yeah. Eerie, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, keyboard, piano music, but uh, it's definitely worth mentioning. I just really like it. I wish I wish it was – I enjoy listening to the music. Even if I don't like the episode, the incidental music is powerful. And I even on the worst episode, it's fun to listen to. It is. To, and so. I want to say as well that the, uh, the intro was different on the Australian shows, as I mentioned earlier. And apparently, uh, just in doing some doing a search, I found on Reddit or some other forum, someone mentioned that the uh, music that was played in the Australian version was written by Gustav Mahler. Apparently, it was his fifth symphony. So you should go really? and check that out okay. because it really sounds very Star Trek, very uh, sci-fi. I mean, it was perfect for the start of the show, and they had some slightly different imagery too. But um, that you know, the music was just great. It didn't matter. Which version it was it was really good. I think that uh, one of the reasons I enjoyed the the show so much was that it was my first introduction to many of these topics. And again, I was maybe five or six, uh, and I yeah. was just so excited every week to sit down and watch an episode of this. I used to watch it with my brother as well, so he's six, seven years older <sighs> than me. And that's so cool. I had to watch it alone. I had to like sneak around well, and get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, know? I think I was inspired to watch it by him i don't think i would have come across it myself if it hadn't been for him watching it but it was just a great opportunity to sit down sit with my big brother and have that time with him and get excited in something that he was excited in as well because you know it's quite an age gap and we had a lot of different interests at that time uh, yeah. but it was just great to uh to have that routine and uh and then he would go out and do whatever it was he was doing because he was you know pretty much a a teenager by that point. Uh, and then I'd have to spend the, the rest of the night alone with my father while my mother was out working. She was a, a server, a waitress in a, a restaurant. So um, it was boring for the rest of the night. So it was just really fun to, to be able to watch those shows. But it was the first time I'd heard about the Shroud of Turin or the Bermuda Triangle. I'd never been exposed to these things and sitting uh, in a little house in Sydney, Australia, I was pretty isolated. So to get taken around the world and uh, experience all of these adventures was just really exciting. And I think it totally has you know, driven me and motivated me to do what I'm doing today. That's cool. Now, did you, was this also where you first heard about Coral Castle? Yes. Yes. And I guess we were going to go into our favorite episodes because it's really hard to choose. I mean, 144 shows. Um, I know, and that's that's. But but several people have told me that that's where they first heard about Coral Castle. I, I'm looking forward to watching that episode. So you haven't seen it? Uh, I yes, I have seen it, but not since the 70s oh, or 80s okay. or whatever. Well, yeah, for me, it was one of those really standout episodes, and I think it was one that my my brother and I both got into. And uh, so it, the official title was the Castle of Secrets, and so it was about Coral Castle, which is located in Homestead, Florida. And it's uh, a kind of park of rock sculptures. Some people say it's the eighth wonder of the world, but I don't think that's necessarily true. But it's just... But we know that's actually Jeff, the talking mongoose. Indeed. So. so it could be the ninth <laughs> wonder of the world, maybe. Uh, but it was a story of a fellow named Ed Leedskalman. And it's quite a mouthful. Uh, a Latvian guy who had uh, traveled to the United States. And I've written a number of articles and including a book chapter on this topic too uh so it's just been a lifelong love it's just such a strange nostalgic romantic story um he 
was he talked about his sweet 16 who was going to come someday and so I think that inspired um the and I can't think of his name now oh my god Billy Idol so that I think that 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 inspired Billy Idol's song Sweet 16. You know that song? No. Oh, because if we can maybe put that in the show notes or something, but that apparently inspired okay. that song. Um, I mean, it's inspired a lot of people over the, the years. It's been – Coral Castle's appeared in movies and music videos and all kinds of things. So it's really inspired a lot of people. But uh, anyway, it was this, this rock castle which Ed Leed Scalman built in the 1920s and uh, he made it out of um, coral rock using, I think, hundreds of tons of, uh, of coral rock. And there were all different kinds of stories and mythology and folklore about how he built this place, theories that he levitated the rock or that it was built on some kind of anti-gravity spot or ley lines. Uh, but in reality, he used simple tools and tripods, and he actually had a background, I think, in – uh, in masonry and building. And so that's what brought him to the United States. And I think he'd traveled across the U.S. working as a builder in various states before he moved to Florida and he built this place. Uh, and then he had an incident where I think someone broke into the, the garden thinking that he had a lot of money. There's a lot more to the story, but he uh, he, he moved the, the entire park in the 1930s. So it was hundreds of tons of coral rock, and he, he moved it maybe 11 miles away to Homestead, where it currently is now. And uh, I went there maybe 10 years ago, and it was just such a fun pilgrimage to be able to go to this place. Uh, again, oh, again, yeah. this little five-year-old Aussie kid just stuck in this house watching this show about a place on the other side of the, the world, and then one day getting to go there and see it was just really exciting and um, I hope to take my son there someday and hopefully he'll have that same excitement about the place. It's just so strange and interesting. And again, a lot of mythology that's built around uh, this story and around this guy. And in fact, um, gosh, what's his name? Jerry Drake, who we've had on the show a number of times, um, talking talking about Jack Parsons and grimoires and all kinds of things. He mentioned on Facebook, we, he and I had a bit of a chat about this and he was talking about how this was his favorite episode too. And it really set off his interest in people who were obsessed by things. And I think that Ed Leedscallon definitely fit that profile of a, a man who was just very driven and focused and obsessed with creating this castle for his sweet 16. And uh, in some of the articles that I've written to, I speculate about who the sweet 16 was. And it seems like she did actually exist. She was a woman that he had known in Latvia I don't think she was terribly interested in him. But, uh, again, this, he's just such a an interesting character, just obsessed with what he was doing and and that uh, that's something a lot of us skeptics are interested in. We're, we're interested in these people and their stories. Well, you know, my uh, my wife's uh, mother is from Latvia. Oh. My mother-in-law is from Latvia. And so uh, that's really got – uh, nothing to do with it, except that I just wanted to say that. <laughs> Six degrees of separation. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, it reminds me of the, uh, it, first of all, this is Coral Castle. And then we've got the uh, uh, the the whole uh, Robert the Doll story in uh, down in uh, Key West. And that's, uh, c- there's a story around Key West around Carl von Castle, oh. which is the, uh, the guy who uh, 
uh, has this, uh, he's in love with this girl named Elena who dies. And, and, uh, it just, re- it just reminds me, we've got these Florida pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've written chapters and, uh, where I, I think I'll probably revisit the, uh, Carl von Castle story when I go to Key West. Uh, work is sending me there this December. I'm oh, very excited lucky. about it. So, uh, I should get to see Robert the doll and, uh, I, I, I don't know how far that is to Homestead, but Homestead had a, there's an Air Force base there. And when I was in boot camp, uh, we had the, uh, there was a hurricane that came through and mm-hmm. just really messed up the Air Force base. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had to come stay. Mm-hmm. So I was in boot camp and, uh, or I guess it was in A school and, uh, had to deal with, uh, all these, uh, refugees from the, uh, from the base, mm-hmm. uh, coming up to Orlando to get away from the storm. That sounds familiar now. Yeah, it was, it was, it's anyway, I look forward to going to Florida and I'd love to go to Carl, Coral, Coral Castle. Oh, you'll have I can't to. speak right. And it's, uh, try to, yeah. try to not go in summer. That's my only advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, our trip is scheduled yeah. for December. I, I'm not sure if we can. <laughs> Too bad. We're actually contemplating driving down and taking an extra day and maybe visiting a few places. We'll see. Absolutely. You should. There's just so much to see there. There's so many cool episodes of In Search of. One of the ones I really love is uh, the one on ghosts. Now, my, speaking of family, again, my brother-in-law, uh, uh, Andy, he loves the ghost episode. And that's got Hans Holzer Yeah, I was just going to say that's and, not Hans Holzer, yeah. Speaking of uh, having yeah. a mix of, of credulous and skeptic. <laughs> yes. And Holzer, uh, his daughter is has picked up that mantle. Yes. But I, I've got a bunch, a bunch of books in my paranormal collection, and Hans Holzer's books are damn doorstops. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like they are, he, he writes a lot. He, he and Brad Steiger, I guess from competition to see who can break my bookshelves. <laughs> but I, I do, uh, I really enjoyed the ghost episode. It's very creepy, but he works a lot with mediums and, uh, he's kind of famous in that he worked on the, uh, uh, the Amityville horror and his, uh, medium for the Amityville horror case, which is another episode they cover in here is yes. Amityville, uh, is, uh, one of the ones that introduced the idea of his physical medium was interested in uh, the idea that Native Americans were involved somehow. That comes straight out of Holzer's work oh, okay. Uh, okay. with psychics. Mm-hmm. So uh, muddying the information pool, mm-hmm. I guess. Absolutely. So, and yeah. um, you were uh, also talking to me about UFOs. Um, and because there was an episode on Australian UFOs specifically, which I watched again recently. I thought that was interesting. Very cool. And then uh, people who listen to the intro to the show will notice that uh, you hear a little bit of uh, Nimoy in the intro to Monster Talk each week. And that is straight out of uh, In Search Of. That's that's from their season one episode on Bigfoot. Oh, fun bit of trivia. Yeah. But, yeah, I have so many episodes. uh, I made a list of some honorable mentions, too, because I I just loved so many of them. I mean, you've got a stack of them, too. But I love the Money Pit Mystery. That's a classic. And I cannot believe people are still spending time and effort trying to find that treasure. That's crazy. Uh, But there they are. Yeah. Still very popular TV show. Uh you know, now they're tying it into the Masons and the Rosicrucians and all kinds of other things. Oh, it's but, still uh, going on yeah. and, and what it was like first heard about in the, the 1700s. And, uh, but I remember when that episode came out, my brother and I went to the local video shop, as was, was fashionable in that time, and we went looking for a documentary on it because we were just so fascinated by that story. 
And uh, all we found was that movie. I think it's like a Goldie Horn movie or something. Yeah, the, the money, which is just about a house that loses. It was Tom yeah, Hanks. We, we were, uh, is we were in sorely that movie. disappointed yeah. that it wasn't that Oak That's Island pretty story. funny, yeah. <laughs> no, no buried treasure. You and I had the fun experience of going to uh, Honey Island, uh, where yes, one of the episodes Louisiana. in, I think, season four is the, yep, the Honey Island Swamp mm-hmm. Monster. And while we were there, the proprietor of the Swamp Tour said that the entire thing was a hoax, there is no monster, and that uh, they had recollections of the guy who was claiming that it was a real monster coming around and laughing at, you know, getting to be on TV and just making the whole and thing up. And we have so, footage of that somewhere. Uh, We're going to have to do something with somewhere. that. Somewhere. Well, I, I think Matt has it, so maybe we can turn it into a, oh, okay, a YouTube cool. thing. Right. I think we need to do that. We've been sitting on that for far too it long. It would be. If you can dig it up. Yes. I, I was not able to find I, – I, my family obsessively videos things, and then I can't really find anything because there's too oh, much yeah, I'm, I'm positive Matt's got a copy of that, so we'll do something with that. I think, unfortunately, we probably need to wrap up episode 200 because my dog is over here tap dancing, saying she wants to go oh. outside. And when Smokey, Smokey the Wonder Dog starts to tap dance, <laughs> that's time I to didn't, wind Yeah, I didn't think up. this episode was going to end that way, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh. It's been really fun talking about this TV show. It was so influential. It has, yeah, just so dear to our hearts. I mean, it's really, I think, you know, we tied it tied in with nostalgia and uh the i'm not ashamed of my of my passion no nor, nor am i i mean i really love it and it was it's just been exciting over the years to speak with other skeptics about the show and find out that just about everyone uh loves it as much as as we do and uh everyone's just really excited about this episode and uh you know i'm just going to continue watching the show um for the rest of my life i think it's just it's great fun and it's certainly very sentimental yes. and nostalgic for me and if any of our listeners have not given it a chance, then uh, they just need to check the show notes and they can find every yeah, you're episode. you're in for some fun. <laughs> I agree. Karen, uh, gosh, I can't believe it's been 200 episodes, but uh, it's been fun and productive. It has. And really an important part it of has. our lives, it I think. Really, uh, it is really important to me. And I've learned so much over the years and, and just – uh, it's just been a great working friendship that we've had, a working relationship and friendship that we've had. And I'm just really proud to be a part of this show and just proud to call you a friend. Me too, Karen. Me too. <laughs> oh, and I, maybe shucks. we have 200 more. <laughs> maybe. Yes. Uh, and if I had a drink, I would drink to that. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today, you heard our 200th episode focused on the impact of the television show In Search Of. As a reminder, my new series with Dr. Jeb Card that will be exploring each episode of the original series In Search Of is on iTunes and Patreon now. It's called In Research Of, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Links will be in the show notes. For our regular listeners, we have more goodies coming for October, so stay tuned as we'll be talking about burials and cemeteries, monster science and serial killers. All that coming soon from Monster Talk. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. 
We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening to our show. In a monster house presentation. The money pit mystery. I'll get you to count that out. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say: your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over a hundred social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today! At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.